So we were going to try out some cool new technology, but that's not going to happen. So, um, so patience, patience. Um, Jesus does something that's really shocking in in our lesson today, and it's 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 impossible for us to access how shocking it is because because we've heard the story before, and um, even if we haven't heard it. We've heard something that was conditioned in the story. We've seen the stained glass window that makes it look all pretty. We, we see the art where some painting, painter has made the dramatic look like that's what happens in temples. But that's not what happens in temples. What Jesus does, does is so shocking that it is almost impossible for us to understand what it was that Jesus uh, did when he cleansed the temple. And so I was trying to think about how I could communicate that. And because I'm a leader in the church, I, I came up with this way. So what I'd like you to do is just for a moment imagine it's Christmas Eve or maybe Mother's Day or let's say Easter Sunday. Okay, it is one of the top attendance days in our church services in, 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 the, in the course of the year for the, the church, the top days for attendance. And you arrive a little bit early, you're, you're there, you get your seat and you know, you know there's going to be a lot of people here today. So you get there a little early, you've got your seat, you're looking at the, the people as they arrive and you see somebody who looks a little rough around the edges. He's not a local. Um, you didn't see him here last week, so you know he's like one of the people who only comes on special occasions. He looks like he's from out of town. And so he comes in, and instead of taking a pew, um, he walks up to the front, and he looks around, and he kind of uh, makes some judgments. And then what he does is he seizes on the piano. He says, that will do very nicely. And he comes over here behind the piano, you know, it's got wheels. And he starts shoving it down the aisle. He shoves it down the aisle, rams it out the door, right through the little post that's supposed to stop things like that from happening, rams it right out the door, and it goes tumbling down the steps. See, that's what Jesus did when he cleansed the temple. He did something that is so shocking, we cannot even really imagine what what would possess somebody to do something like that. No one would, you know, who could possibly come in here and disrupt our worship service? But that is exactly what Jesus did. Jesus didn't push a piano out the window. It's true. Uh, out the door. The window would work fine, too. Um, to turn it sideways. Um, so uh, so uh, Jesus, Jesus didn't push the piano, but Jesus disrupted the Passover service. The Passover service was the central point in the worship of the, the the Jews living in Israel and people who came from all across the empire. Um, uh, his, uh, contemporary historians tell us that in Jerusalem for the Passover would be somewhere between 300 and 400,000 people, some of them local, but many of them from all over the Holy Land and other parts of the empire. So it was by far the biggest celebration in the collective worship of the, the Jewish religion at that time. Um, now, Jesus did not disrupt, uh, you know, they didn't push a piano, they hadn't invented pianos yet, but what he did is he interrupted the sacrificial system. We heard in our reading from Leviticus what Jesus did um, uh, disrupted the way that they uh, sacrificed animals. The system that, that operated in the temple is you came for Passover and you would buy a lamb. Maybe depending on the circumstances of your life, you might also have a reason to sacrifice a bull or um, uh, uh, some kind of cattle. Um, but typically people would come, they would offer a sacrifice of a lamb, and that would be a part of their Passover celebration. If they were very poor and they couldn't afford um, 
a lamb, then there was a provision. They could sacrifice a, uh, a pair of doves or something like that. So there was some, some, some variation in what people did. But ultimately, they went to the temple so they could have a sacrifice offered um, on their behalf. In order to do that, particularly if they came from outside of the area, uh, there wasn't paper money, there wasn't bank transactions in those days, so you had to show up with coinage. And one of the problems with coinage is that people can kind of clip the edges, right? So this used to be an ounce of uh, copper, and now it's almost an ounce of copper. And if I do that with enough coins, then I've defrauded a bunch of people, and I've got another ounce of copper that nobody noticed me stealing. So that's what happens with coins. And so they wanted to use uh, coins that were of a, of a regular shape and size that had a particular quantity of weight. So wherever you got your coins, they would translate them in or they would uh, exchange them for Tyrian coins, which means coins made in Tyre. Tyre is a city or was a city in what is today Lebanon, so north of the Holy Land, but they were popular throughout the Eastern Empire because they were of high quality. Um, people could not... Um, clipped the edges as well, and they were of known, uh, the, the quality of the metal was very good. So uh, in order to make it fair for everybody, we want to use Tyrian coins in our worship service. If you want to buy a dove or something like that, use a Tyrian coin. They're of better quality. So Jesus shows up and says, um, you better have brought them yourself because I'm getting rid of the money changers. And the same thing with the people who sell animals. Um, Jesus is, is making no, he is disrupting the way people thought that the Passover would take place. Jesus is being as disruptive as he possibly could be. He didn't just show up and make a mess. He showed up on the busiest day of the year and made the biggest possible mess he could. That's what Jesus did in our reading. So why did he do that? Well, there are a variety of, of answers, and um, the the one that I think John is getting at is slightly different than the one that the other three writers of the biographies of Jesus um, uh, tell. There are four biographies, as you know, in the, of Jesus in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the one we're looking at is John's, and it's, it's different in a number of ways. One of, the, one of the ways it's different is that John positions the the cleansing of the temple at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, the other three writers put it at the end. And people don't know, are we talking about similar events that happened at different times, or are we talking about one event that John has rearranged? John has told us, as we saw the last couple of weeks, John has told us he's not interested in making historians happy. He's not trying to tell a story that is chronologically arranged for a historian. He's telling an opinionated picture of what he learned following Jesus around with the purpose that anyone who reads it will have enough information to put their trust in Jesus. And by trusting Jesus, they will have eternal life. We're going to hear more about eternal life over the next couple of weeks. But remember, for John, eternal life is not simply um, life when you when you die. It's the life of the age to come, and you can have it now. So John wants people to have that. And he says the way you do that is by believing. And the way to get you to believe, the way to help you believe, is not by satisfying some historian about the chronology, but rather telling you things in a, in a series of signposts that help you get where you should go. So it could be that they are the same event that John has rearranged for his own purposes. Or it could be two separate events. Um, the way that the other bi- uh, biographies uh, put it, Jesus 
has um, has uh, showed up near the end of his ministry. And it could be that this event, this highly disruptive event, is one of the reasons that hardened the temple leadership against him and made him want to made them want to seek his death. So it could be that. But but the question is, why would Jesus do this? We've been we've been in this series. We've been looking at Jesus, and Jesus tells his disciples, "Come and see." The the psalmist said, "Taste and see that the Lord is good." Jesus says the same thing. Follow me around, uh, and John is inviting us to do that to follow Jesus around, see where he goes, and come to a place where we can put our trust in him. So Jesus says, come and see. And then last week we saw the way Jesus began his ministry. The first sign he actually showed was by by changing the way we think about the way the world works. We think that the world works in a, in a system of cause and effect, that if I push here, it moves there. That essentially they're, they're, that what goes around comes around, that, that we get what we deserve. Everything happens for a reason. And what Jesus invites us to see is that there is also built into the universe something at a very deep level which is that sometimes we don't get what we deserve sometimes we get what we do not deserve we get grace and so we saw that last week where jesus saved a a young couple from from um social disaster when their when their wedding party ran out of wine so we like that we like a jesus who says come and see you know check this out you'll like it and we like a Jesus who says, let me show you that sometimes you get you get what you didn't deserve. You get grace. We like that Jesus. But this Jesus, Jesus with a whip. I mean, who pictures Jesus with a whip, right? You know, it doesn't say he used it on the people, but it doesn't say he used it on the animals. Jesus makes a whip. That's not the Jesus that I, you know, you know, we just told the children about, you know, he loves me, this I know, right? Who is this Jesus, and what is his problem? What's gotten into Jesus? Well, I, I want to share with you what the the kind of the majority opinion among the 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 gospel writers, the the biography writers, is um, because we need to at least take seriously the possibility that this is the same event that they record at the end of his of his ministry. So Jesus explains there in just a few verses what he's up to. Um, in Matthew's gospel, he quotes, um, he quotes, uh, two, two prophets. So, uh, Matthew 21, is that slide back there? Yes. So, Jesus enters the temple and began to drive out the people buying and selling animals for sacrifice. He knocked over the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. So, sounds like the same story. But then Jesus explains why. He says, the scriptures declare, my temple will be called a house of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of robbers. And what Jesus is getting at there has to do with the two um, prophets that he's quoting. The first prophet he quotes is from Isaiah, where he talks about a house of prayer. And in um, uh, the book of Isaiah, Isaiah, God speaking through the prophet says this, these foreigners, he's talking about foreigners who come to the temple. He says, these foreigners, I will bring, God is bringing them to his holy mountain, and he will give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Now, Jesus is alluding to this. He doesn't quote the entire verse. Uh, it's a long verse, um, but he's referring to this. He's saying that God's desire is that people who are far from him, the Gentiles of the world, would have the opportunity to come to the temple and worship there. And the way the temple actually worked is there was a place for Gentiles. There was the holy place where the where the, the seat of God was, the, the footstool of God it's sometimes described. 
But then next to that was the court of the men. And then further out from there was the court of the women because, you know, obviously they can't be as close as the men. That just makes sense. But then, you know, before you, before you get in your high horse, by the way, none of us would qualify because we're Gentiles. So we would be even further out. Uh, we would be in the court of the Gentiles, which was kept the furthest of all because we want to accommodate Gentiles. Isaiah reminds us that God has a place in his heart for Gentiles. But let's face it, they're out there. And in fact, you know what? That would be a great place to set up um, our animal sales booths and our money changers. Because let's face it, they're Gentiles. They should be glad that they get to come here at all. So if they hear the the the, the cattle lowing and the, the sheep bleeding, they hear the chingle of money and they can't understand what's going on, well, they are Gentiles after all. And, you know, they should be happy for the little scraps that they get thrown. And Jesus gets really pretty hot under the collar about that. He says that it has written that my house shall be a house of prayer for all nations. So part of what Jesus is upset about is that there is this this uh, uh, effort to distance the Gentiles from the worship of God. But Jesus says more than that. He says, you've made it into a den of robbers. And this is even worse. Jesus quotes the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah says this. He lists a bunch of sins. He says, will you commit a whole bunch of different types of sins and then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say we're safe. Safe to do all these detestable things. Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. What Jeremiah is getting at is there are people who sin all day long, but then they come to church on Sunday and butter won't melt in their mouth. He says there are people who are hypocrites, that they are practicing a false religion. They show up in church and they go through the motions and God says through the prophet, I am watching. So I don't know which one of those critiques Jesus is getting at. He's saying clearly that you have made this house of worship not into a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. So an even stronger critique. He's saying you are practicing a false religion when you come here because what you do the rest of the week doesn't line up when you come to the temple. So it could be that that's the complaint Jesus has here. And unfortunately, we don't know. All Jesus says in the passage is he says, don't turn my house into a marketplace. But then the disciples remember something. He, he says, um, he says, stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. And his disciples remember this prophecy from the scriptures. Passion for God's house will consume me. So, the, the, the word consume means to burn me up. And in fact, if you go and look at Psalm 69, it doesn't say will consume me. It says has consumed me. So the disciples are seeing this as the place where Jesus started down a path that ultimately would lead to the cross. That it was this passion that Jesus has for God's house that started the process that ultimately would lead to the cross. So the leaders show up. You could again picture the piano is just tumbled down the stairs. People like me, people like our council show up and ask this stranger, dude, <laughs> you know, it takes us a while to, to kind of formulate the first words, right? But eventually we say, what do you think you're doing? You know, do you think you can just waltz in here to God's house and, and 
throw our piano out the door? Do you think you can just drive out the money changers? Do you think you can just send the people with their cattle and sheep out of here? Who gave you the authority to do that? This is God's house. The only person who can give you that authority is God. And if you are from God, let's see a sign of it. Let's see a miracle. Let's see you do something like Moses did or like Elisha did, uh, uh, Elijah. Let's see you do some kind of a sign to, that testifies to the validity of your ministry here. I want to see you have the authority to push that piano down the stairs. And instead of showing them a miracle, Jesus gives them what sounds like a riddle. Jesus says, he says, all right, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. What is he getting at? What does he mean by that? Well, John kind of tells us, we don't have to, we don't have to study that and think it over and go, I have no idea what you're getting at, Jesus, because John gives us the, the cliff notes. John says, um, uh, they, they say it's taken 46 years to build this temple. Actually, 46 years and counting. It actually was about another 30 years before they completed the work on the temple. Um, so he says, 46 years to build this temple, and you can rebuild it in three days. But John, but John tells us, when Jesus said this temple, he meant his own body. And after, his dead, after he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered this. He had said this, and they believed in him. What is it that he's getting at? Why does he answer them with this riddle? The reason is something he told us, we, we looked at two weeks ago. Uh, Jesus says that, what is a temple? You know, what is a temple? A temple is a place where heaven and earth come together. We saw a couple of weeks ago, Jesus was talking to Nathaniel, and he said, uh, Nathaniel said, you know, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said, you believe because of that? Trust me, you're going to see a lot better than that. You're going to see, and I think, do I have the verse up here? It's from John 1. There. He said, I tell you the truth, you will all see heaven open and the angels of God going up and down in the Son of Man, the one who is the stairway between heaven and earth. Jesus says, you will see the place where heaven and earth connect, the place where the angels go up and down. You will see in me, the Son of Man, you will see the place where heaven and earth come together. That was the promise Jesus made earlier. When Jacob saw his ladder and the angels of God going going up and down, Way back at the beginning of the, the book of Genesis, uh, the, the patriarch Gabriel, um, Gabriel, the patriarch Jacob sees a vision just like this, and he says, this is a place to build a temple. This is Bethel. This is the house of God. I will build a temple here. And he does. He builds an altar, and he worships there. Later on, David institutes the practice of worship in Jerusalem, and it is called the footstool of God. That Zion is this place where heaven and earth come together. And Jesus is saying, All those things have pointed to me. He says, all those other temples that remembered a time when heaven and earth came together in a particular way, they pointed to me. They looked forward to who I am, that I am the one. I am the one where angels can move between heaven and earth because I am the place where heaven and earth come together. So he says, I am the superior temple. And here's the proof. You're going to destroy this temple, and I will raise it up in three days. He's talking about his death and resurrection. But this, the rest of this temple, everything you see when you look around, it's going to be destroyed, and it will never be raised. Not in three days, not in three years, not in 300 years. This temple cannot last. And in fact, that's what we know happened. 
about 30 or 40 years after the time of Jesus' resurrection, the temple was destroyed. The Romans came in and they were intent on suppressing a rebellion and they destroyed the temple and it is still destroyed to this day. And it will go on being destroyed because um, during the, the next thousand years, uh, the um, followers of, of Islam built the, built the temple of their own there. They built a shrine there called the Dome of the Rock. And so it's one of the contested holy sites in in Jerusalem today. It's the reason that there's a, it's one of the reasons why there's so much strife in the Middle East. There will never be another temple where Jesus stood that day. But he said the temple that matters, the temple that that one pointed to, will be raised again in three days, and it was. So Jesus says this is the place where God's kingdom breaks in. John very rarely uses the language of kingdom of God. We're going to see some next week. But he says, this is the place where the kingdom of God, the kingdom we pray for in the Lord's Prayer, thy will be done, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. That as your kingdom crosses that barrier, as it descends to us through the person of Christ, your kingdom breaks into this world. So John's going to be talking about more of that next week. So Jesus is saying, this is the place it begins. This temple has always pointed to me. And there's no sign I can show you. Moses never did that. Elijah never did that. They were prophets. I am the king who God has sent. I am the place that connects heaven and earth. So that's what Jesus is getting at. That's why he's so uh, determined to show that he has authority in the area of the temple. So what do we do with it? Well, for a lot of you, um, the issue, the, the, the question may not be as obvious as it is to those in leadership in the church. Um, for, for me and for the members of our council, the obvious question for us is what tables would Jesus flip over? I don't think Jesus has a problem with the piano. I really don't. Um, there are tr- Christian traditions that do think Jesus has a trouble with piano and they only allow um, vocal singing. You're not allowed to use instruments in a church. So uh, there are traditions that believe that. Our tradition does not. But it raises the question for those of us in leadership in the church, what tables would Jesus flip over in our church? You know, the the Methodists have this great slogan. Um, Whenever somebody asks me, why is this church here? I turn to the Methodists because they've got a great slogan. It's very easy to, to remember. And it is this. The purpose of the church is to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. So that's why this church is here from the Methodist side. Now remember, this is a union church, and we are part of both the United Methodist Church and the Presbyterian Church USA. The Presbyterian Church has an answer too, but their answer doesn't say why. It says how. And the Presbyterian Church says, yeah, yeah, we got to do that, but there's something we need to remember as we go along, which is we are terrible at doing the things God wants us to do. So the Presbyterian Church says this. This is our slogan. Um, it, the next one. So it says, We are the church reformed, always in need of being reformed according to the word of God. The Presbyterian Church take a really kind of dim view of humanity, and they say, yeah, you know, yes, we're trying to make disciples, but you know what? It's going to creep in. The the bad things, the, the selling of, of, of animals, the the changing of coins... We need always to be looking for the things that God will flip over. That if Jesus came to our temple today, he would find some things to tip over. 
And so we are always in need of being reformed, not just a one-time event that happened back at the time of Luther, but perpetually. We always need to be reformed according to the Word of God. So what is that for us? I don't think it's the piano, but I am drawn to those two prophetic scriptures that Jesus cited in the Synoptic Gospels, the Matthew, Mark, and Luke accounts of the cleansing of the temple, where he talks about the den of robbers and the house of prayer. Now, the good news is that there's less pressure than ever before in our history to come to church on Sunday and be a hypocrite. If you're a bad person all week long, your neighbors won't think any worse of you if you don't show up at church on Sunday. That's just the truth. As Christendom as Christendom collapsed, there's just no pressure, really, to come to church and pretend to be a good person on Sundays. So people typically don't. I don't think that that's a real problem. I, I could be wrong. I don't know all your stories, but I doubt if any of you are really terrible people all week long and you just come here to look good on Sunday. I'm hoping that's the case. <laughs> so... Uh, I don't think that that's an issue. But so, so when Jesus talks about a den of robbers, people who are, who are simply trying to look good on Sunday, I don't think that that's the problem that we have. But I do wonder about the house of prayer for all people. You know, the nature of a church is the people inside get to vote and the people outside don't. It's just that, you know, they don't get a ballot, right? How, you know, there's no absentee ballot for people who aren't in the church. How do we accommodate the Gentiles? so that when they do come, they don't find that we've used their spot to sell cattle and to change coins. You know, that's one of the things where we need to always be cautious about whether we're accommodating the people on the inside to the detriment of people on the outside. And, you know, I don't have anything specific. I can't point at something. But you know outsiders, some of your children, some of your grandchildren, are intrigued by Jesus. There are things that they would like to know more about Jesus. But they don't come to church on Sunday. Why is that? You know, ask them. Ask them whether it's something that is intrinsic to Christian worship or if it's a cow out in the court of the Gentiles or a money changer. You know, that's that's the thought that occurs to me when I think about what this means for us as a, as a body of believers, the t- the, what, what, what tables would Jesus flip over for us collectively? But, you know, it's more than just a collective question. See, at the very end there, tucked at the very end of chapter 2, it says, because of the miraculous signs Jesus did in Jerusalem at the Passover celebration, he didn't do any right then. They said, show us a sign. He said, I'm going to give you this riddle instead. But... During the course of the Passover celebration, he did signs. And it says, many people began to trust in him, but Jesus didn't trust them. They began to trust in him, but he didn't trust them because he knew their belief was superficial. He knew that if he came into their life and flipped over their tables, they would walk away. He's going to talk to a man named Nicodemus about that next week. But the question is still there. What tables would Jesus flip over in your life? What would he do in your house, the house of your heart? The Christian theologian Augustine of Hippo, St. Augustine, he lived about 1,600 years ago in North Africa and um, also in Rome. He 
moved back and forth, mostly in, in North Africa. And Augustine wrote this at the beginning of uh, just a classic work of Christian literature. I, I Seriously, I encourage everyone to read Augustine's Confessions. It's very accessible. You'll think to yourself as you read it, it's like, hey, I, this guy really sees inside me. Um, he's, he's, a, he's a great writer with great insight into um, what it is to be a Christian. And he asks this question. He says, he, he begins, he begins the, the confessions with this prayer. He says, um, I've, got, I've got it written down. He says, my soul, he begins this prayer, Oh God, my, my soul is like a house, small for you to enter, but I pray you to enlarge it. It is in ruins, but I ask you to remake it. It contains much you will not be pleased to see. This I know and do not hide. But who is to rid it of these things? Augustine knows he can't do it himself. He says, there is no one but you who can flip over the tables in my heart to make me who I need to become. Jesus came to the temple that day. He did the most disruptive thing he could do. He wrecked Passover for everybody who was there that day. The question is, will we let him wreck our worship so it can become what he wants it to be? And will we let him turn our hearts upside down so they can be what he wants them to be? Let's pray. God, we love you like these first believers of Jesus. We see so much that that we want to trust Jesus. But sometimes, Lord, we are unwilling to let him change us. So, Lord, we pray that you would flip over the tables in our hearts. You would flip over the tables in our church. Maybe there are metaphorical pianos that need to go down the stairs. Lord, our house, or at least this room or this wing in the house, are in ruins. And we pray that you would remake it and enlarge it and come to live in it. Through Christ our Lord. Amen.